Good morning. Uh, thank you to uh, Jeffrey and Rachel for leading us in singing, uh, leading the choir in singing. That's what Steve Pritchett always says, is that when you're in the church, you're in the choir. And um, I'm always grateful for people who can lead us, but especially to hear all your voices. A lot of times I'm up here playing bass, so whenever I can be in the congregation, it's especially sweet for me. Um, so I know most of you, but there are some I don't. My, my name is Joel Parker, and I serve with the team of elders here. Uh, my wife, Caroline, and I are part of the family here at the chapel, and we have a high school daughter, Sadie, and a middle school son, Oliver. Um, one little caveat, uh, there may be a couple times during the message where I refer to my dad, because I always call my dad my dad. Dad and I sometimes joke where he'll say, you need to refer to you know, our pastor emeritus, Richard Parker, because people might not know I'm your dad. I'm like, well, like 90% no, but you know. So if I say my dad, I'm referring to Richard Parker, who's one of the staff pastors here. That's just like shorthand. I'm not going to every time say, and pastor emeritus, Richard Parker, it's dad. <laughs> um, in a few minutes, we're going to share the word together in Ephesians 4, but to just get us thinking in the direction of some of the themes we find there, and while we're still talking about family. Um, so one of the first arguments Caroline and I ever had, and Caroline shares this in small group all the time, so I, I feel free to share it with the whole church, but... <laughs> I don't even remember exactly what we were talking about or arguing about, but we were going back and forth, and I was getting increasingly animated. The conversation was escalating, and at one point, Caroline said, you were just so bent on the truth. And I said, thank you. you know? <laughs> I, was like, I didn't know what to say. Like, I had just been to law school. I was like, is that a bad thing? Am I bent on the truth? You want me, you want me to not be bent on the truth? You know, and obviously, I wasn't really thinking about the way I was expressing it or, or the timing. But, you know, and you hear expressions in society sometimes like the, like the truth hurts. Or um, if you ever saw the old movie A Few Good Men, there's the showdown with Jack Nicholson and Tom Cruise, like, you can't handle the truth. Um, you know, there was another movie several years ago that there's a scene in a bowling alley, and the main character is on the same bowling team as an ex-Vietnam vet, and they're playing in a league championship game. And on the other team is kind of a, a 1970s-style hippie, uh, hippie pacifist. And the pacifist barely steps over the line, if at all, when he rolls, and the Vietnam vet says, foul, foul, no, over the line, mark it out, mark it out. And no, it's, it's barely over. They, they kind of get into this argument and the vet ends up pulling out a gun, saying, you know, the rules matter, you're, you're about to enter a world of pain, and so the main character is like, you gotta calm down, you gotta calm down. And when they go out to the parking lot, the main character is still saying, you, you just can't do that. I mean, he's, this guy didn't do it on purpose, and, and the vet, the rules matter, the rules matter. And he keeps asking the rhetorical question, am I wrong, am I wrong? And finally the main character answers it, and in so many words says, no, you're not wrong, you're just a jerk. <laughs> you know, he was basically admitting, like, he did step over the line, but you're being a jerk. And it's humorous to kind of reflect on these things, but, but actually, I do think we're constantly trying to navigate the relationship between truth and love. Um, another thing you might have heard is that 
it, it, truth without love is too hard or love without truth is too soft. And, and certainly we can ask ourselves in, uh, valid questions and we need to be wise in the proper time and the proper place for things and our motive in communicating something or taking an action. But I do think as Christians we have to be clear that the Bible itself, God himself and his word never pits truth and love properly understood as against each other. God never puts them at direct odds with each other. Uh, Jesus Christ is said to come full of grace and truth. Now, we do need to be instructed and refined about what truth actually is and what love actually is. I, I would suggest from a Christian perspective when it comes to how we love other people, any, whether it's somebody who's in the faith or not, Christian love is, is concerned with another person's well-being, genuinely. Now, that, that still doesn't make it uncontrover- uncontroversial because part of what that means is it's not in another person's best interests to have their sin remain unforgiven. It, it's not in a person's best interest to die not reconciled to their heavenly father. It's not in somebody's best interest to suffer abuse or to not have access to basic needs. Um, So at the most practical and spiritual levels, having the truth actually makes Christians more accountable for how we are to love. So part of what this means is that communicating truth will sometimes be received with hostility, even with the best of motives. But the key is that does not, in God's perspective, and therefore in the only perspective that matters, ultimately, that does not make it unloving. So, so, So rather than trying to figure out, do I choose truth or do I choose love? We should always be trying to figure out, how do I be faithful to both? Because they're inextricably linked. Um, I appreciated a quote I read. It's actually from an atheist. Um, I'm not familiar with these guys, but some of you might have heard of the, the comedy magic team, um, Penn and Taylor, uh, Penn Gillette. And several years ago, Penn Gillette was interviewed, and um, he talks about a, a Christian who was sharing the faith with him. And he was asked whether or not he respected that, and he, said, he actually said he doesn't respect people who don't evangelize. And this is what Gillette said, I don't respect that at all. If you believe that there's a heaven and hell, and people could be going to hell, or not getting eternal life, or whatever, and you think that it's not really worth telling them this because it would make it socially awkward, or if you're an atheist who thinks people shouldn't proselytize because just leave me alone, keep your religion to yourself... How much do you have to hate somebody to not proselytize? How much do you have to hate somebody to believe that everlasting life is possible and not tell them that? If I believed beyond a shadow of a doubt that a truck was coming at you and you didn't believe it, and that truck was bearing down on you, there's a certain point where I tackle you, and this is more important than that. Now, we can see the bluntness there, and there, there is an element of truth to that. Now, to be clear, you know, the Christian religion is not one of coercion. 
um, part of what it means to believe that God is the author of salvation and that only the Holy Spirit draws people is that we don't pretend or we shouldn't pretend to bludgeon people mentally or physically into the faith. We are to announce the good news. We are, we are to herald it as good news. Um, we're, try, we're to try to patiently and passionately persuade, but we never condition our proper treatment of people based on whether or not they believe. So Christianity doesn't, doesn't seek to win converts through violence or compulsion, but we must communicate the truth. And so the point I want to make here as we get into this is that that is a loving thing to do. What that looks like and is going to be different in different contexts, but, you know, what, what God has joined together, let not man separate. That's also true of truth and love. He, he's joined these things together. And there's different case studies we could go to in the Bible where we see truth and love in action. But one of my favorites that we're going to look at this morning is the Apostle Paul's relationship with the church in Ephesus. And because we're going to be diving into Ephesians 4, you, you can turn there now if you like, but before I read the passage, just to refresh ourselves on who Paul is and, and who this church is. Now, Paul was formerly a Judaizer, advancing, highly educated, and was zealous about persecuting Christians. And in fact, had gotten authority from the chief priest to go to Damascus to arrest believers. But in this divine irony, Paul himself is arrested, as it were. Jesus Christ appears to him in a vision through a blinding light. Paul would later write in Galatians that in that revelation, he received the gospel. Jesus appears in visions that then to Ananias and again to Paul, leading to Ananias, who was a local disciple, praying with Paul, laying hands on him. He repents and is baptized and has his sins forgiven and is then commissioned to bring this message of life to Gentiles, kings, and children of Israel. It's, it's not a, a short order. It's a tall order. But when it, when it comes to Ephesus, though, Paul, at that point, from Paul's conversion, it's probably about a couple of decades before Paul actually comes across the Ephesians. He's traveling, doing the work of an evangelist, preaching the word, and he, and he comes to the town of Ephesus and finds about a dozen disciples there who had been baptized into the baptism of John, and in spite of the time that had elapsed, because of their location and other factors, they had not actually heard the full explanation of Jesus' death and resurrection. So Paul shared this news with them, and they were baptized in the name of Jesus and received the Holy Spirit in connection with that belief in Jesus. And the results were dramatic. I mean, Ephesus was a city where it housed one of the original seven wonders of the world. It had the, the temple to the goddess Artemis. And, and within three years, because we know that Paul spent three years ministering there, it says everyone in Asia had heard the word of the Lord, and a lot of them believed. Uh, in that town, partly because of the temple, there was a very thriving industry of, of uh, silversmiths and craftsmen making shrines to Artemis. And so once people turned to the one true and living God, they started burning their books of magic arts. That The value was probably in the millions of dollars. And, I mean, this, this led to a, to a riot. You know, they, they, the silversmiths all gathered together in protest 
Uh, we're going to lose our living. People are going to question whether Artemis is a real god. So there was, there was instant dramatic results with Paul's experience in Ephesus. And when he finally leaves after three years and, try, and he's on his way back to Jerusalem to make his way to Pentecost, he pauses in a coastal town called Miletus, and he, he doesn't have time to go to Ephesus, but he, he calls for the Ephesian elders, and he has this kind of famous tearful farewell with them. But part of what he says is that not only did he not shrink back from telling them the truth, he tells them and cautions them to be on guard against fierce wolves, to care for the flock of God, that false teachers will come in among them. So Paul was always burdened about sound doctrine and the possibility of false teachers in Ephesus. About a decade after Paul gives that farewell, he writes letters to Timothy. And in 1 Timothy, what he says is that I left you in Ephesus to charge certain men not to teach false doctrine. So even a decade later, this is on Paul's mind. He's worried about false doctrine creeping into Ephesus. But he also says in 1 Timothy, the aim of this charge is love. That issues from a, a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Again, love and, and doctrine going together. You know, we don't know all the details as to what this meant, but after Paul died, you fast forward like 30 years later, you get another glimpse of Ephesus in the book of Revelation, and they're commended for hating the teachings of certain false teachers. They hate the teaching of the Nicolaitans. God also hates that. But then he says, but I have this against you. You abandoned your first love. <laughs> Whatever that was, love and truth were always to be upheld by the Ephesians. And so in the middle of Paul's farewell in about 55 AD to the elders and the mid-60s when he wrote to Timothy, in the middle of that, right around 60, 61 AD or so, he writes this letter to the Ephesians. So I thank you for your your patience in that intro, but when we're coming into the fourth chapter, I, I thought it was, it was worth it. And it's, and, it's, it, you know, and it's good to recount context and authors and recipients to realize how rich these relationships were. These aren't sterile letters, right? All right, so Ephesians 4, let's hear the word of the Lord, verses 1 through 16. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, 
the shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Amen. Uh, Let's pause and, and pray together before we proceed. Father, those 16 verses are are the best words any of us have heard this morning. I pray that your spirit would divide truth. Whatever I say that is helpful, help it to sink into our hearts and minds. Anything that is not in accord with what you're declaring here, make that evident and hold us fast to yourself. Thank you for your truth and thank you for your love. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So looking at this church being called to have love and action work, or love and truth in action in a community, we'll better understand that as we seek to answer three questions in this text. First is, what is the, the foundation of our unity? Uh, secondly, uh, what empowers our growth? And then third, what should we expect to transpire? You know, in other words, what will happen? What will be the glorious result if we grow into Christ in this way? Verses uh, 1 through 6 is where we will get a, gain an understanding of what, it, of what the foundation of our unity is. So here's the answer. The, the foundation of our unity uh, is God. That's a, that's a classic Sunday school answer, right? It's, it's God. But it is. It's God. Uh, so what do I mean by that? Um, well, what I mean is that our unity, the, the unity God gives us is a reflection of, of who God himself is, what he's like, what his nature is like. Uh, some of you are familiar with John chapter 17 that's oftentimes referred to as the, the high priestly prayer. And there... Jesus prays to his Father that the people whom the Father has given him may be one, even as we are one, um, and that future believers would be one just as they are one. This is, the, this is the unity among the people of God that Jesus prayed for, and, and Jesus' prayers were answered. And, and also in that prayer in John 17, Jesus is reflecting on the tremendous love and fellowship that has always existed within the Trinity. We've been, we've been singing about the Trinity this morning, uh, holy, 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 God in three persons, blessed Trinity, or King of kings, praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one. There, there is relationship and unity and love within the Trinity itself. So as those born of the Spirit, the unity we reflect as a body 
is to tell the truth to the world about what God Himself is like. You know, if you look in verses 4 through 6 here in Ephesians, I think it's seven times the word one is used, right? There's, there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father. And so, this God who is one has a people who are to be one. He's the foundation of our unity. Let's just move briefly through those seven different one statements so to, to sharpen our understanding. So, the first one is one body. In verse 4, there's one body. This is referring to the universal church. Some of you have, maybe have heard that distinction, local church and universal church. Very simply, we hear this is a local church. The universal church is comprised of all local churches and all Christians that have ever existed in every age all sincere believers, the, the true church of Jesus Christ. And so in, in the grandest sense, to say we're one body means when we turn to Jesus in faith and repentance, we enter that family. Now, we, the way that's expressed and experienced is, is in our local church, but larger than that, we become part of the kingdom of God. So the, the one body is the universal church, the one spirit. This is the one Holy Spirit who effectually calls us into that body. One hope. Now, for circumstantial reasons, as Christians, we might have different practical hopes or desires, but we share the most magnificent hope. It's, it's common to us, and it's the hope of the future inheritance of the saints. I mean, it is the hope that God who began a good work in us will complete it, and that when we close our eyes in death, to be absent is to be present with the Lord, and then when Jesus returns, He will give us resurrected bodies, and we will be with Him and with each other forever and eternity. That, that is the one hope. Uh, we do well to think on it more often, maybe especially when things are dark in our lives now. To know it's not always going to be this way, we have a sure and steady hope we're all clinging to. The one Lord is the Lord Jesus Christ. One faith. Now, the next couple, these, are, of course, could all be a message or a series of messages in and of themselves. But one faith, what, what do I think this means? Well, subjectively and personally, it includes that we're each trusting in the same Lord. But I, I think it also is getting at, objectively, the truths that Christians commonly confess. You know, uh, Paul frequently in his other writings will refer to the faith or a faith or, you know, positively, he says he kept the faith. Or, or negatively, he says some have departed from the faith. Uh, the language of Jude would be that um, there's a common salvation and, a, and a, the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Now, here's one paradigm, maybe this will be helpful to you. One way to maybe summarize the one faith is, at a minimum, Christians have a shared understanding of who God is and who we are, and a commitment to those realities. So, the way the New City Catechism puts it, some of you have used that with your kids, but the New City Catechism asks, you know, what is God? 
God is the creator and sustainer of everyone and everything. And that most especially includes you and me as his image bearers. But as far as what's true of us, we know that we've all been born with hearts that are naturally inclined to, re- to resist and even rebel against God's right rule in our lives. He is the sovereign of the universe, and we do not naturally bow the knee to him in myriad different ways. We all, like sheep, have, have gone astray. This is, this is part of the faith that Christians believe, that that God is good, that He is creator, the right ruler over everything, the right ruler over us, and that we have each in our flesh rebelled against Him in some way and rightly are under His wrath. But, the, of course, the Christian faith also includes the good news, which is that this one Lord we've been talking about, who we entrust ourselves to, lived a perfect life, fulfilling all righteousness. He he took on flesh. We'll get to that more in a moment when we get to uh, the subsequent verses here in Ephesians 4. But the, the divine Son of God became a man, fulfilled righteousness on our behalf, and then bore the penalty for our sins on the cross, and then defeated the consequence of sin, which is death, by rising from the grave and then ascending to the right hand of the Father. This is part of the faith that we, we must confess. You know, we've heard some really great messages in recent weeks from our senior pastor, uh, Brad Williams, about other tertiary or secondary matters that can be considered matters of opinion over in the later chapters, chapters of Romans. Th- those, those are not the core things that we must agree on to be on the faith. But these things I'm discussing now, these are core. I- any version of Christianity that would teach that we don't have a sin nature that needs to be redeemed is not part of the faith. Any version of Christianity that would teach that we are saved by our own efforts is not consistent with the apostolic witness. So this is the one faith. One baptism. To quote 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and one spirit, we were all baptized into one body. So this refers to the baptism of the Spirit. Uh, Regeneration. Some of you know that word, regeneration. In other words, because of the realities we were just rehearsing, every one of us is dead in our sins. You know, not struggling in our sins, but dead in our trespasses and sins. And we need the Holy Spirit to quicken us, to bring us to life, and grant us faith and repentance in order to enter His family. That is the spiritual baptism. That is the one baptism that all Christians share in. Now, water baptism is something we do in outward obedience to signify the inward baptism we've already experienced. Um, And just a side note on this, part of what this means, part of the implications of this, is that there's no such thing as a subsequent or second baptism of the Holy Spirit. God's Word is clear right here that there is one baptism. Now, there are legitimate topics and other texts we have to grapple with along the lines of what does it mean to walk in step with the Spirit, to not quench the Spirit, to be filled with the Spirit. Those are all legitimate topics that the Bible speaks to that we need to gain an understanding of and seek after. But however we understand those things, they should not be considered within the realm of baptism, That's what I want to be clear on. 
There's, there is one baptism. And of course, one God and Father. Um, and I, I think especially in these Ephesians verses, this is referring to the fatherhood of God in reference to his believers, those who've had the one baptism, who share in the one spirit, etc. Uh, so God is the foundation of our unity. And when, when you back up in Ephesians 4 to verse 3, it says, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. There's a reason it doesn't say produce the Spirit or manufacture the unity. The idea is God himself has already given this unity to us. We, we, don't, we don't generate our unity as a body any more than we, than we generate our own salvation. But just as those who are personally saved are to seek after and experience personal sanctification. Collectively, we who receive the gift of unity are to have a corporate sanctification where we grow together up into Christ. Now, this does present kind of a challenging question for us because uh, actually the way John Stott put it, he's he's a theologian and a pastor who's since gone to be with the Lord, but He says, what is the sense in Paul urging us to maintain a unity that God himself created and is therefore indestructible? So, for example, Jesus said that he's building his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And in that sense, the people of God are indestructible. If God grants the unity, how could it be corroded? And the reason that that's a challenging thought to have is we know that in our experience, at times, we can show an absence of unity or a disunity that contradicts the spiritual reality. I, I sort of think of it as a similar dilemma. is like in Romans 6, when Paul pronounces all these profound spiritual realities about us, like, you have been baptized into death with Christ. You know, um, you, you do have newness of life. You know, you've died to sin, but then he says, so don't let sin reign. Don't continue in sin. It's like, why do I have to be told not to continue in sin if I've died to sin? Well, (laughs) it's because there is a spiritual reality God has already produced in us, and we, we are works in progress. I mean, so the call here in Ephesians is to maintain visibly what's true of us invisibly. I know that's kind of an odd way to put it, but the, in, you know, the invisible church as God sees it, when God who has perfect knowledge and sees into all of our hearts, he knows who his one true church is, and he knows it's unified, but we are in our life together to increasingly display that for, for our own benefit and as a witness to the world. Um, maybe an, an, an analogy that might help is if you think of a human uh, biological family. Uh, and just in terms of what can, something that can be true, but the experience doesn't always match up to the reality. I mean, we've just had Thanksgiving, and even in a room this size, there's probably a mixed bag of really easygoing, pleasant experiences you had around the Thanksgiving table, or maybe a sadness that certain people weren't there with you, or they were there and it was tense. Um, you know, with a biological family, let's say there's a parent and child like a grown child who are no longer communicating or, or siblings that don't communicate anymore. Are they no longer part of the same family? 
do they not share the same last name? Do they not share the same parents, the same DNA? Well, the siblings share the same parents, not the parent, not the parent child. <laughs> so, the, you know, the, the desire to be, well, then be unified, be a family. Now, where the analogy breaks down a little bit is biological families are a mixture of believers and non-believers, ideally the church of God and truly in God's sight. The true church of Jesus Christ is only comprised of believers. So we can expect and should expect more of ourselves and each other. You know, there's this reality that as much as it depends on you, be at peace with all men. And sometimes we won't have the opportunity for peace with our biological family members. They, they, they might not be willing. But within the local assembly of God, not desiring unity is not a valid option. Um, so I, I think that's why he says to, to eagerly maintain, which means to spare no effort. And when we do that, what will it look like? Well, that's really what the first few verses in Ephesians 4 are about. If you look at verse 2, humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another in love. That this, this unity is to be worked out in the context of concrete, loving relationships. John Calvin said, humility is the first step to all these other qualities. Uh, you can think of our Lord in Philippians 2, that he, he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross, he emptied himself. Part of what it means to be saved by grace and have this new status, it means we are to imitate the humility that our Lord himself displayed. That means we don't insist on our own rights. Um, that, that means we don't maneuver to try to demand the respect of others. The ideal of gentleness, this would be, well, again, Jesus described himself as gentle and lowly in heart. To be gentle doesn't mean weak. It, it does mean meek. Uh, think of it as having your strength under control. It, it's hard not to go back to Jesus again. Uh, w- was Jesus out of control when he turned over the tables in the, in the temple? No, he, he wasn't. So, so gentleness doesn't mean that there's never any spirited personality. But it does mean that we're gentle in heart. We don't have outbursts of anger that are uncontrolled, and when we do, we repent of those. I'm sure, whether in relationships with friends or in your family or in the church, you've at some time been part of an outburst of anger or committed it yourself. Um, you know, the call there is to bear with one another in love, which means we're quick to apologize, quick to seek forgiveness, quick to grant forgiveness. Um, I, I don't think we can eagerly maintain unity by begrudgingly granting forgiveness. So God is the foundation of our unity. And then next, what empowers this growth, this kind of loving growth? Well, it's gifts. It's, it's grace gifts from God. Look at, look at verse 7. But, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. So now we see that there's, there's unity amid diversity, just like the Trinity, by the way. It's just like the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit each have unique roles. 
the unified church has diversified gifts. We are given gifts according to the measure that Christ gives us. And these gifts are intended to root us in the truth and empower us to love one another and love God. Now, as far as this measure of Christ's gift, uh, we we should note a few things about this. Um, this, this, I want to say this carefully. God doesn't gift us in the same ways or even in the same measure. Um, I think of the parable of the talents. You know, there's the, over in Matthew, there's the, the person who buries his one talent and doesn't faithfully use it. But the other two, the one with the two talents and the one with the five talents, they have a different measure of gift. But they are both faithful with what God grants them, and they both get identical praise. So I think the question for each of us personally, as we evaluate what opportunities we have to serve the body with our time and our gifts is, am I going to be faithful with the measure that God has given to me? Some gifts are more public. Some are more subtle. In some ways, I, I think part of the beauty of the gifts is going back to when I quoted Paul and Tim, when he wrote to Timothy and said, the aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. I, I think in some ways the greatest gift is to be able to do anything in the body of Christ from that pure posture. <laughs> so that means that a 14-year-old who sincerely tells a chaps teacher, it really helped me when you explain this verse and shows encouragement, has every much value in one sense in the kingdom of God as a seasoned pastor who encourages somebody else behind the pulpit, right? I mean, it's, it's the purity, the sincerity of it, the fact that it derives from the Spirit. Um, and part of what this means, if we each get different measures, is that none of us has sufficient gifts in, our, in and of ourselves, and that our gifts are to be woven in in conjunction with other people's gifts. God's weaving a tapestry. Um, I mentioned John Calvin earlier. I kind of laughed because what he, he said in his commentary on this, that the body needs to grow in proper proportion to each other because wouldn't it be weird if, you know, someone had a gargantuan arm and the rest of their body, you know, hadn't grown at that pace. I don't know how that exactly works itself out, but I do think it means that we understand our gifts are not mainly for our own benefit, but they're to build up the body. That's what we read later in this text. It's for building up. But let's consider just a little deeper this idea that Christ gives gifts. You see that it says in verse 8 that he ascended on high and he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. You're welcome to turn there if you like, but that's actually a, quote, a quotation and, and a slightly different, different rephrasing of Psalm 68. Um, I'm going to read it. It's Psalm 68, verse 18. This is a psalm of David. Verse 18 says... You ascended on high, leading a host of captives in your train and receiving gifts among men, even among the rebellious, that the Lord God may dwell there. 
So the distinction is, you'll see in, in verse 18 of Psalm 68, it says that the, the victor receives gifts among men. Uh, and, the, and the way Paul phrased it in Ephesians is that he gave gifts to men. So what at first looks like maybe a possible contradiction, once you study it, is actually very enriching. So first of all, the, the Hebrew word that's used for receive can mean receive in order to give. And here's the picture. The picture in Psalm 68 is of a conquering king who comes in and overwhelms his enemies, takes captives, and then divides the spoils with his people. You know, the, the giving is implied in the receiving. And so when, when Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes that verse and writes it down in this letter to the, the Ephesians, that really makes a much more colorful picture. So he's so Christ, when he rises from the grave and ascends to the right throne, he, he's got a train of captives in his wake. Like what, what are those captives? Well, sin, he's defeated sin, Satan, death. He's even turned some former rebels into happy and willing servants. Right? And, when, and so this, this victory involves changing hearts, overturning the schemes of the devil, saving us from ourselves, and then giving us gifts. I mean, so these are not like pithy presents or something you would view wrapped under a tree. These, these are life-giving gifts that he gives to his church. And so when he says he ascended on high, and then verse 9, he ascended, what does it mean that he also descended into the, into the lower regions of the earth. You know, within orthodoxy, there are some different nuanced understandings of what it means when it says descended to the lower regions. But here is really, I think, what's significant for us to take away in the context of this passage. Paul is juxtaposing Christ's humiliation with his exaltation. Uh, like we sang in the King of Kings, you know, from a, from a throne of endless glory to a cradle. Is it cradle in the dirt or cradle in the grave? Cradle in the dirt, okay, yeah. To a cradle in the dirt. So this, is, this becomes a little wild when you start to think about it. The, the spirit of Jesus was always at the right hand of the Father, as it were, in heaven. But his body wasn't there yet because he hadn't been born yet, right? And so when Jesus humbly comes on and takes on flesh, you know the story, you know, born in a manger and all that he endured, a humiliating death on the cross, this is, this is the grand call for our humility, by the way, and to take up our own cross. But he was humbled to the point of death, even death on a cross, and that same Jesus not only walked out of the tomb, but in Acts 1, ascends. So his, bo his body, his resurrected body ascends. I, mean, that, I just think that you know, we might not <laughs> realize how, vic how victorious this is. It's also a foreshadow for us. When I mentioned earlier, we will get resurrected bodies one day. Our elder brother and Lord has gone before us. He's taken a, uh, he's taken a host of captives in his train, and he's turned hearts of rebels. And he's, giving, he's given us powerful gifts to get us there. So the gifts are what empower our growth. And, and what of these gifts? This will be our third point. He gave, and I'm actually going to start back in verse 11. He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers. I'm going to pause there. Um, 
We don't have time to unpack this morning about all that's entailed with the offices, but I'll just say in brief, from a perspective of office, we, we don't believe at the chapel that the office of apostle has continued or the office of a prophet, like, as in like an Old Testament prophet who's a direct mouthpiece for God, has continued. We don't think those things have continued, but he has not left us with any less powerful gifts. The big idea behind all these gifts are people who can minister the Word of God, who can explain the Word of God, and, as verse 12 says, especially equip the saints for ministry. That's what leads to our growth. So, how do we understand this reality of some being called, maybe in a more public sense, as like an elder or pastor to minister the Word, versus everyone else in the congregation? Is it only the pastors and elders that minister the Word? How do we understand what's unique, and how do we understand what's common? Well, I would say this. It's clear in James, it says, not many of you should be teachers. It's clear that the church recognizes godly men to be called to serve in the role of pastor or elder. And the way I understand that is um, the pastor, elder, overseer, it's the same concept throughout the New Testament. So at the chapel, you have multiple pastors. Now, you have two staff pastors, Brad Williams and Dad. Um, but Jack Neal is a pastor. Richard White is a pastor. George Bowes is a pastor. Uh, I'm a pastor. Ed Barnard's a pastor. And what I mean by that is we're shepherds. We are non-staff pastors. And there will be, Lord willing, other of you who become shepherds. And so the unique role of shepherds is they're tasked with safeguarding sound doctrine in the assembly. And, importantly, with equipping the saints for ministry, one of the effects will be for them to be released to minister the Word in all different kinds of contexts. And, and here's what I would say about this. Uh, as I read in a book recently, it, was, it said something like, expositional, the, the Sunday morning expositional sermon is the foundation and bedrock of all the ministries of the Word that happen in the church. And I would say amen to that. But then it adds, but it is not by itself sufficient to bear the load of ministering the Word and all the forms that the Bible contemplates. So, sometimes people ask somebody, are you going into the ministry, <laughs> right? Like, meaning vocationally. And we, we know what that means. But it's kind of like the church being the choir. <laughs> when you turn and trust Christ, trust in Christ for salvation and attach yourself to His people, in a certain sense, you become a minister. What I mean by that is you have the one Spirit you have no less of the Spirit. You were no less baptized in the Spirit. And there will be occasions where you can prayerfully articulate the Word to others in a way that builds them up. You notice, I'm skipping ahead to verse 15, but it, it, Paul says, speak the truth in love. And he's contemplating all the saints being equipped. Um, and when we act together in these committed, loving relationships, and then we begin to ask, well, how does that shape how we pray for our leaders? What, what, what are we hoping they will do? I mean, they, they need to impart truth to us, but we, we should be praying that they equip us. And, and if you're not a pastor or elder, you, you, how does it shape how you receive the equipping you, you get? And I, and I don't, I don't want to, I'm trying to think of how to say this. 
there are beautiful acts of service that are very valuable in the kingdom of God, that are indispensable. And, and I mentioned James earlier about not many of you should be teachers, but we should also balance that with 1 Corinthians where Paul says the parts that seem to be weaker are indispensable. It's kind of like, I don't know if you've ever played Jenga. <laughs> you, know, you remove one piece that doesn't seem to be at the foundation. It all comes crumbling down. Everyone is needed. And so there are, there are beautiful acts of service behind the scene and, and praise to God. But one of my concerns is that we think, we can sometimes think the only people who can actually speak the word in a way that ministers to somebody is if you have an office or a special gift. I don't think that's true. You know, you might be in an early stage of your growth where it might be 10 years before you're, you know, saying encouraging things to somebody in a Bible study or on a phone call. But every one of us in here should be prayerfully considering how can I minister the word to other people and be ministered to by them? Um, I don't think that requires uh, you to be an extrovert. I don't think it requires a dynamic personality. I don't think it requires you to be doing things in public a lot. But it's a, it's a grand, glorious thing that adds to the tapestry of the kingdom of God. Uh, some of you are Pink Floyd fans, right? So in the, with that ballad, Wish You Were Here, there's a line where he says, uh, did you exchange uh, a walk-on part in the war for a lead role in a cage? I mean, you know, you know what a walk-on is. It can be like in the theater or on a sports team. You know, you so desperately want to be a part of, of that team. You don't have a scholarship. You, don't, you have to pay your own way, put in blood, sweat, and tears. You may be a tackling dummy, but you, the... the the endeavor is so grand, you want to be a part of it. So when they ask, did you exchange a, a walk-on part in a war? You know, a war, something noble and serious, especially if there's good guys and bad guys, so to speak, meaningful. Did you exchange a walk-on part in the war for a, a lead role in a cage? Better to be freed by Christ and have a, a, a walk-on part in the kingdom of God, something that's larger than ourselves, than to have a, you know, like a lead role in a cage. And everyone, everyone is valuable. Now, when this happens, and we see this in verses 13 through 16, we get further rooted in our knowledge and in our expression of love to one another. I'll reread 13 through 16. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Now, in verse, the end of verse 13, it refers to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So part of what that means is we never reach full growth in this life. I don't think we attain the measure of the stature of Christ until we are completely remade when we're in heaven. So there's always room for us to grow. 
There's always room for leaders to grow, for non-leaders to grow, for individuals to grow, for the church to grow. But when we start to grow and increasingly grow, um, I appreciate the way two authors in the, in a, who wrote a book called The Trellis and the Vine put it. Uh, I think Colin Marshall and Tony Payne, they referred to three C's. That we, we want all of our people to grow in conviction, character, and competence. So if you think about conviction, that, that's knowledge of, the God, of God and of His Word. You see that there in Ephesians 4.13 and attaining the knowledge of the Son of God and, and, and not being tossed around by false doctrine. You know, character, a godly character that accords with sound doctrine. In some ways, that's what this whole section is about. The character of gentleness and humility and bearing with one another in love. And competence, that being equipped to do the work of ministry and to speak the truth in love. Again, this will be in varying degrees for us and in different situations. But when we work together in this way, it will increase each of our competence or ability. It's, of course, another message for another time about how we go about ascertaining what our gifts are and how to use them. But I just want to pass along a few suggestions in case they're beneficial to you. I would say we should each be open to giving and receiving affirmation and critique. That takes humility. That takes love, which is what all this, this, this section's about. But whether, with it's, whether if it's with leaders or other brothers and sisters in the church, do, do you ever ask anybody, hey, I'm... I'm inclined to want to go direct this direction or try this thing. I don't know if I should. Do you think I would be good at this? Or if you notice somebody doing something well, do you seek them out and say, hey, I, I just, I'm always refreshed when you do ABC or whatever. Um, in other words, we're not supposed to try to determine these things in a vacuum. So I would say be open to receiving affirmation and critique. And even though there are clearly some gifts, and some of them being very public, like those who handle the Word as evangelists and pastors, etc., I would caution us against overly fixating on skills and abilities. Uh, this, this can cause us to be stagnant or hesitant. I mean, maybe you're in a small group Bible study, and you've been walking with the Lord for two years, and you, you find you want to either ask a question or say something, and... Um, you just don't think it's going to sound profound or it might sound off. Um, seasoned believers need to be reminded of the kinds of things new believers think about and need to be sharpened in how to answer those questions. You, the body might need you to ask that question as a young believer. Um, going back to what I said earlier, I think the real gift is being able to engage in these things with a, you know, a pure heart, a good conscience, a sincere faith. I'm just going to close with, with mentioning one or two examples of how I've seen this happen. One maybe negative, one much more positive. <laughs> this idea of the joints working together. Um, like my daughter, Sadie, she's on the rowing team. If she's in a quad, like in a shell with four people, three people can have the stroke rate just right if one person's slightly off 
You know, it, they're, they're struggling. They can even get off course a little bit. Well, several years ago, and this, this person is a believer. They're, they're not pr- currently in our church. They moved on a while ago, but we, it was a massive endeavor to relocate from Stephen Foster to Oak Hall. And, and Kevin Brown might remember this, but we had multiple people involved at multiple levels, just serving, rolling with the punches, and it was largely very beautiful. There was one person that day who was very much making their impatience of how the process went known, just griping, complaining, accusing this, this school of that, that school of that, and we were all kind of walking on eggshells, and he was like, are they okay? And, you know, that could happen to any of us. I've, I've probably done that at some point. But my point is, is that it just takes one of us being out of step and disregarding the unity, you know, just a little bit of, what, you know, yeast in the dough type thing. Um, but more positively, and, and this gets into beyond just the local church, but the wider body of Christ. Uh, when our brother, Christian Weiss, he has some family here today, when he, when he passed away, what, just from my vantage point, part of what I saw was, okay, another gospel-believing church in town, Faith Presbyterian, offers, offers their, their worship center where a Christian used to be an elder. And then we have people we send over. Mason Young leads the singing with the piano, and, and Brad gives the message. And then Karen Piedra orchestrated people bringing food. And then a family in Faith Presbyterian hosted the Weiss family. It was just like you could just see, and even in the midst of sadness, there was something beautiful, just like humming along, you know, all the parts working together in concert, like the way it puts it in verse 16, um, when each part is working properly, it makes the the body grow. Uh, Let me pray for us. Father, I pray that you would stir in each one of us this morning a, a fresh desire to Consider how you've gifted us to walk in freedom of knowing that we're valuable in your sight and valuable to your people, to be content with whatever measure of gift you've given us. I pray for conversations in the coming days and weeks between all our people, leaders and non-leaders, that there would be a kind of a rejuvenated desire to be equipped to minister the word, and to, in fact, minister the word to each other. I pray you would grant us growth, spiritual growth, and that it would be a good witness to our community here in Gainesville, and that it would bring you much glory. In Jesus' name, amen.